Parashat Nasa. Um, we're going to look at the final piece of Parashat Nasa. And uh, you might think that by me using the word final piece that I'm talking about some small segment. It's actually the longest chapter in the Torah. It's 89 Pesukim. Okay, so you're going to think there's lots of interesting things in that parasha. I mean, 89 Pesukim. Can you imagine how many, how many things you can fit into 89 Pesukim, 89 verses? It's only about one thing. And it's very repetitive. Um, it's the gifts of the princes of each tribe at the dedication of the altar of the Mishkan. And I'm just going to dive right into it. I've taken excerpts from it um, because it's a repetitive. I don't have to reproduce the whole thing. In any event, I don't want all the trees in Brazil to be cut down in order for us to print our source sheets. So I've just taken a small excerpt here in Source 1. It was on the day that Moses finished erecting the Mishkan. He anointed it. He sanctified it. Um, all its vessels, the altar and all its vessels, he um, anointed that and he uh, anointed them and he sanctified them. And the princes of Israel um, brought, Rashi Betavotam, talking about the heads of their father's houses, Hem Hamatot, these were the princes of the tribes, um, or the leaders, you could say, Hem Haomdim Alapkudim, they were the ones who were present, they presided over the counting. Okay, that's who they were. They, they took a leading role in each tribe. Vayaviu et korbanam lifnei Hashem. They brought their offering before God. I've left this piece out. It's not relevant to this shiur, although it's interesting in and of itself. I've jumped now from the third pasuk now to the tenth pasuk. Vayakrivu hanasiim et chanukat hamizbeach b'yom himashach oto. The princes brought offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day that it was anointed. And the princes presented their offerings in front of the altar. And God said to Moshe, So the, the um, literal translation of that is, one prince a day, one prince each day, what God is telling Moshe is, let them not all bring it on the same day. They should, each one of them should bring their gift, whatever that gift was, their presentation, on a separate day. Yakrivu et korbanam should bring their offerings for the dedication of the Mizbeach. Okay, so now we're coming to the very first offering. Vayehi hamakriv bayom harishon et korbano. Nachshon ben Aminadav Yehuda, and it was that the first person to bring his offering, um, it's on the first day, was a man called Nachshon ben Aminadav. He was the prince of the uh, tribe of Judah. So I have highlighted the word or the words et korbano, his um, offering. You're going to see much later in the shiur that is significant because when something is identical. Remember as a little child, they used to 
show you pictures which were exactly the same and you had to spot the difference, okay? When you've got two things which are totally identical, it's interesting to notice the slight differences, the differentiations between them. So even though each of the presentations of the princes is identical, there are very slight variations between them. And here, this is one of them. So, the words et korbano is um, different than all the other presentations recorded here in chapter 7. The korbano, it says again, so I'm going to just read the English. If you look down at the English translation, and his offering was one silver bowl weighing 130 shekels, one silver sprinkling basin weighing 70 shekels according to the holy shekel, both of them filled with fine flour mixed with olive oil for a meal offering, one spoon weighing 10 shekels of gold filled with incense, one young bull, one ram and one lamb in its first year for a burnt offering, one young he-goat for a sin offering, and for the peace offering, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Nachshon, the son of Aminadav. Okay, so this series of gifts, very specific, right, is repeated time after time after time. How many times? Twelve, because there's twelve tribes. We don't include Levi. And there's two tribes from the tribe of Joseph. There's Ephraim and Manasseh. So you have twelve presentations, each of them completely identical. Okay? Now, look at Pasuk Yudchet. Beyom HaSheni, Hikriv Netanel Ben Tzuar Nesi Sachar. So note the difference. Remember that last time we saw Bayom Arishon et Korbano. Remember that? Here we don't see um, the, the et Korbano. Just on the second day, he kriv Netanel ben Tzuar nesi Issachar. Um, Netanel, the son of Tzuar, the prince of Issachar, brought his presentation, his gift. He kriv et Korbano. He brought um, close his uh, sacrifice, his gift, Ka'arat Kesef Achat. The same thing again, then repeats exactly the same thing that we saw with Nachshon ben Aminadav. And I've just included the third one as well, also for something I may say later, if I get to it. And the third gift was brought from the tribe of Zvulun. His name was Eliav ben Chelon. Okay? So here we have the introduction and the content of each, uh, the introduction to them giving it and the content of each gift. I've only included one version, the version of Nachshon ben Aminadav from the tribe of Judah. But if you go th work through all the 12 tribes, you will discover that each gave an identical gift. So we're going to jump right into the second source, which is Abarbanel. Abarbanel, um, characteristically, has a very, very long piece on this entire chapter, uh, you know, he, he, what he likes to do is ask a series of questions and present us with one comprehensive answer that deals with all of those questions. I'm just going to, I've just taken um, a small piece of Abarbanel, which deals with this issue of the identical gifts, because really the problem is, the problem is, why would they have given exactly the same thing? You really need to understand, you know, 
My son just had his bar mitzvah, and lots of people brought gifts. Most people brought gifts. And I, I can't tell you, none of them were the same, but the majority of them were different than all the others, right? It doesn't matter what the gift is, it's always slightly different. And, you know, if you go, if you go into any situation, if you eat a meal in somebody's house, even if everybody brings a bottle of wine, it's very unusual for two people to bring exactly the same bottle of wine, right? Here we have the most significant moment for the tribes in Jewish history. I'm talking about tribally. So I'm not talking about significant moment in Jewish history is Exodus from Egypt, but that's for the whole Jewish nation. Um, receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai, that's for the whole Jewish nation. But for individual tribes, this is the most important moment in Jewish history. Because this was a moment where they all stood out individually. And yet, they all did the exact same thing. Surely this was the moment for them to show their individuality. Whatever that individuality may have been. It's not important what that would have been. But somehow the, the nuances, the slight differences between their gifts would have been a way of us decoding what this tribe has to offer the Jewish nation. And yet, everything was uniform. Why? Why should it have been exactly the same? So that's the question Abarbanel deals with. Yesh Meham Farashim, there are those who explain, that the reason why every tribe brought exactly the same thing is because that was a specific instruction from God. And the code for that is that it says in the Pasuk, Vayomer Hashem El Moshe, and continues to tell him that you know, that each one should give it on their own day. But as part of that instruction, God was saying they should give exactly the same gift. They shouldn't give different gifts. nasi echad etc. That this was a decree from the king. You might want to bring a different gift. Don't bring a different gift. Bring exactly the same gift. So it was a command from, on ab from above. kol echad hevi and that's why, and, and one of the clues to that is, that one of the things that they brought was a korban chatat. And a korban chatat is not something that you can bring voluntarily. You have to be instructed, you have to be obligated, compelled to bring a chatat. So it could only have been that they brought the chatat. This is the clue. Because God had commanded them to bring the whole gift and the chatat was part of that. So if you look at it from that perspective, clearly this was not something that they did um, because they felt like they wanted to. It wasn't a voluntary offering. It was a compelled offering, a compulse. Uh, they, were, they were compelled to do it. It was mandatory. Uh, that, in that it was mandatory meant that they all brought exactly the same thing. That's what the Abrabanel quotes some of the Mepharshim who say that. If it's true to say, says the Arbarbanel, based on this idea, that all of these korbanot, all of these sacrifices, these gifts, as it were, were gifts, how is it possible that they all brought exactly the same thing? 
Why would he say that? Exactly what I just said. Right? So there's no two people who have exactly the same idea. You know, if 12 people go home and they have to think through with their advisors and friends, what is it that we should bring as a gift to this very special party? They're not all going to come up with exactly the same series of gifts. And then, oh my gosh, you thought the same thing as me. It's, it's just so unlikely. Therefore, it's much more likely that this was an instruction from God and this is what they all brought. Okay. Aval en davaze nachon be'enai. Says Abarbanel, it doesn't, it just doesn't make sense to me. Somehow, I can't, I can't buy into this idea. Aval amitat ha'inyan hazehu she'ele anesiyim no'atsu lev yachdav. He says, no, it's not God that told them what to bring. It is they that got together with each other and they decided that they would all bring exactly the same thing. Why? We're going to give gifts, but imagine we all bring different gifts. What's going to happen is people are going to say, ah, my gift was much better than yours, or your gift is not that good. And there's going to be jealousy, and there's going to be difficulties, and troubles will emerge because of the differentiation of the gifts. Therefore, this wasn't an instruction from God. They weren't compelled to bring these things. They themselves decided to bring these gifts identical gifts, so as not to create friction between the tribes. Because as we know that this entire nation was sanctified and God was among them. All of these people were great leaders among the Jewish nation. Exactly the same as each other. Each one of them was of equal status. So it's a remarkable testament to their greatness and their respect for each other and their equal status in their greatness. This fact that they got together and decided all to bring an identical, identical gift. They agreed among each other to bring exactly the same gift How often is it true to say that People try and upstage each other. And they were cleverer than that. They second-guessed that situation. Here was the first time in Jewish history where one could have expressed individuality as a tribe. And their lesson to us was, don't do that. Do the same thing. Make sure that you never upstage somebody who could be upset if that's what you do. These great leaders acted as mentors for for Jews throughout our history, that we should never uh, try and upstage each other in that which we do, which we can do. What is the first instance of that in history, in recorded history, as in the record that we have in the Torah? 
the two brothers, sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. What happened there? The, the um, korban, the gift, the sacrifice of Abel was from the finest of his sheep and their fats. It was not as distinguished a sacrifice. It was from the fruits of his field, whatever it was. What happened? Cain killed Abel. Why? Because he felt upstaged and it generated jealousy. And that was something that the Nisi'im recognized was a grave danger. And this was what they wanted to do in order to ensure that that wouldn't happen. This was their moment to shine individually and they deliberately didn't. Because of this, they were cleverer, they were wiser. Um, they knew what to do. The princes of Israel, to bring each one of them should bring an identical korban identical to that of his friend or his counterpart. All of them like one man with one heart. They are, not because they are identical, but because in that situation, making sure that you do the same thing will ensure peace and tranquility within the nation. Okay, so that is Abarbanel's pshat as to why each of the, uh, nasim, um, the gifts of the Nasi'im were the same. Let's look at the Ramban. This is a very, very famous Ramban on this parasha. And he says as follows, I've not translated it, He says, actually, this was Ruach HaKodesh. They didn't consult with each other. No, they had, they had no contact with each other before. But all of them had Ruach HaKodesh. This was what they should bring. They went home and either they consulted with their friends and they had a joint Ruach HaKodesh or they just had it individually themselves. Whatever it is, they came up with this gift and they came to give the gift. And guess what? Each of the gifts was exactly the same. And this is what's unique about the Ramban, that even though all of them came up with the same idea, um, you know, sometimes uh, uh, you've been to a shower, you know, before, you know, baby shower or bridal shower, people bring a gift and they write a little note as to why they're giving that particular gift. You know, it can be a memory, it triggers a memory. I'm going to give you this, uh, you know, it's a bridal shower. They, I'm going to give you this kitchen utensil. Do you remember that time we had such fun in the kitchen? We did this, that and the other. And you write a little note and, that's, and that um, gift generates that memory or associate is associated with a particular memory. Each of this, these gifts, says Ramban, was given for a very specific individual reason. Remarkably, all of them gave the same thing, all for different reasons. So Nachshon ben Aminadav gave his gift for reasons of his own. It happened to be that the tribe of Yisachar and the tribe of Zavulun gave exactly the same, gave it exactly the same one. There was not, nothing different about it. It was totally identical in every way, but their reasons were completely different. So the note that accompanied their gift at the uh, Mishkan, the Chanukah Hamizbeach shower party, was totally different from the others. Each one of them gave a different note, but the gift was exactly the same. 
אבל נחשון חשב בשיעור הזה טעם אחד, he had his reason, וזולתו כל אחד מהנשיאים חשב טעם בפני עצמו. Each one gave their own reason, but it happened to be the same gift. The Sforno um, runs with this ball, and he says as follows, the reason why the Torah does not simply lump all these offerings together, but tells us separately 12 times what each prince's offering consisted of, is that each one had intended thereby to atone for all the sins he was aware of that members of his tribe had committed and had been guilty of. Each prince performed the act of placing all his weight on the animal, becoming the sin offering on behalf of the members of his tribe, guilty of sins, requiring, requiring such a sin offering to atone for their sins. This was a regular procedure when communal offerings were being brought. So basically, even though the gift was identical, they were associated with a totally different set of sins because each tribe was individual. So whether it was Ruach HaKodesh or whether they got together before and discussed it and decided all to bring the same thing, whatever the reason for them all having brought exactly the same gift, it was almost irrelevant because when it came to giving the gift, the actual act of giving was accompanied by a process that was totally individual for each tribe. The Eish Kodesh, I saw it quoted and I looked it up, and he says a beautiful thing. And now we, we are really turning to what is the most puzzling element of this entire chapter. We're in uh, source number five. The most puzzling aspect of it really is that if you were, um, I'm, I'm not suggesting that you would ever be, but the author of the Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu, at the instruction, the dictation of God, writes the Torah, And what is the policy of the authorship of the Torah? Brevity. Keep the verbiage down. Don't, you know, don't be verbose. So if we were writing this, imagine this was an exam, okay? And we have to write this in the shortest number of words possible. I'd give a list of Nasim, then I'd record the first gift of Nachshan ben Aminadav, then I'd say, and on each following day, each of the Nasi'im gave the same thing. The chapter would be all of 20 psukim long, but you'd have achieved the same result. Why does this um, chapter need to be 89 psukim long? Why do we need to repeat each of the gifts in vivid detail? No necessity for it, particularly if you know that the policy of the Torah is not to be verbose. Doesn't make any sense, right? Says the Eish Kodesh, I'm, the, the Nitivot Shalom is, is going to be a much more um, developed idea, but the Eish Kodesh, um, writing in Warsaw Ghetto in the early 1940s, writes as follows. There is a type of prophetic revelation that results from looking into a holy book. It is not knowledge of the future. Not that type of navi'ut. You don't become a navi. For that kind of prophecy ended when the temple was destroyed. Chazal tell us there's no such thing as prophecy anymore. Rather, it is guidance and a call to service of God and the holiness of Israel. So if you need guidance and you look at the words of the Torah or of Tanakh as a whole, somehow there will be revelatory aspects of it 
which will which will give you clear guidance as to how you should pursue those objectives. At times, we have all experienced looking into a holy book, and then we suddenly become extremely moved by a certain idea. So we read a pasuk, by the way, you may have read it a hundred times before, and it didn't do anything for you. And suddenly you look at this pasuk, and bingo, a light goes on, and it really has meaning for you. A word pisses our heart, and gives us no rest for years until it can transform us into a different person, sanctifying and uplifting us. One word, one pasuk, something you never noticed before, some aspect of some narrative, some story, the most bizarre thing, perhaps, and it can be so inspirational. What is that about? asks the Ish Kodesh. We may have already heard this idea from others and probably seen it in books, yet we remain untouched, unmoved, Yet now, the matter suddenly penetrates our heart and mind. This is a version of looking into the breastplate, the Urim Vatumim, worn by the high priest. There too, all the letters were written, yet only some of them would shine into the eyes of the Kohen, and only a Kohen with divine inspiration at that particular moment for this particular thing. Another Kohen could stand beside him and not see anything. The idea is that there are words in the Torah which can inspire you. Now, I could read the piece about Nachshon ben Aminadav's gift, and it doesn't move me. And then I'll look at the piece by, about Netanel ben Tzuar, and I'm going to be really moved. One second, you just saw exactly the same thing. But that was another one. This was this one. In other words, there is a holiness in the words of the Torah that can inspire you. And it's got nothing to do with it being exactly the same thing. It can be exactly the same. But that one is that one. And this one is this one. And this happened to be the one that inspired you when you read it. Now, there is a reason for that, which we're going to see in the Netivot Shalom. Netivot Shalom has a, um, an interesting... Um, a very revealing idea as to what all this was about. How does this, he, by the way, is using the Ramban's idea, and I'm not sure if you saw the Ish Kodesh, but it takes elements of that idea as well. And generally, his approach is, is very profound about this concept of the repetition of words in the Torah seemingly unnecessarily. Let's look at the Nitivot Shalom, and it's really very special. Parshat Korbanot Hanasi'im Lichora Temu'a B'yotari Chut Inyana B'Torah Kedusha. The truth is, if you're looking at this chapter, and truthfully, nobody looks very much at this chapter, because once you've seen the first bit, you've seen all of it. So you jump forward to Parshat Bahalotcha. Why do you need to look at all the things that were given by the Nasi'im if each of them was exactly the same? And that's very puzzling, he says. Because there is a repetition of each of the 12 gifts of the Nasi'im. They gave exactly the same thing. We don't need it to be repeated, said again and again and again, if we know they were exactly the same. Why 
Why does the Torah need to repeat itself 12 times to tell us exactly the same thing that the Nasi'im gave that thing? We know that's what they gave. All we need to do is to say that they gave the same thing as each other. We know that the Torah is so careful with each and every word. Each word is precious. Each word is counted carefully. There's not one extra letter or word in the Torah. So how is it that in this chapter... It seems to lose that principle completely. And from one letter, you see in the Gemara time after time, from one vav, from one hey, from one little letter, we learn all kinds of halachot, all kinds of Jewish laws. Why would the Torah at this particular instance just run away with the words and repeat the same thing again and again and again? You can ask the same question about what uh, about the counting, the census of the Jewish population that took place in Parshat Bamidbar. Why, why does it need to repeat itself and go over every, each and every number? What relevance is it? First, the Torah uh, goes ahead and counts the exact number of each of the tribes, um, you know, of itself. First, each one is written separately by itself. And then we have the total number. What's the purpose of it? It repeats it again and again. Why? Why does it need to repeat itself? His basic question is, if we are so careful, we know this principle from Chazal, from the Talmud, how every letter matters, how, you know, behind each letter, the backdrop to each letter and each word and each pasuk in the Torah is so incredibly deep and rich how is it in this chapter we lose that that principle completely and similarly in the count the census of the population that takes place in parashat bamidvar we seem to lose that that policy of being careful with the words completely but emet he answers let's be clear about one thing first he says don't imagine that just because we know what we know, that we know really anything about the Torah. The Torah is, um, is a book about which we know very little. What we know, we know, and what we don't know, we may never know. The depth and breadth and richness of the Torah is far greater than our comprehension. And don't believe that simply by reading it, or by, for example, knowing this principle, about letters and words and, you know, the length of each chapter in the Torah, that suddenly we have the answer to, er to everything. We don't. And it's, as it says in many of the holy books, You have to understand, there are 600,000 explanations for the Torah. Why would we come up with this number? Because it is an association with the 600,000 souls that stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. How many Pirushim do we know? Two, five, ten, a hundred? How many Pirushim do we know? Do any of us reach 600,000? No. So if we, if we buy into this idea that the Torah is of far greater depth than the basic meaning of the words, or even some of the deeper um, 
more comprehensive explanations that we are familiar with, then suddenly we realize that, that we have very limited knowledge. And here's, this is the key point, and it's so beautiful and so special. I want you to listen carefully. Every soul has his own personal explanation of the Torah. We all have our own personal relationship with the Torah. It's your Torah. It's your thing. It's your understanding. It's your personal connection with the words of the Torah. And to the extent that we believe that we understand that which is written in the Torah, um, this is in comparison to all the secrets of the Torah, that we have no possibility of understanding. There are parts of the Torah that, that we don't even understand the basic explanation. Forget a complicated, a complex one. Right? The, the Torah is so beyond us in that respect that we're never going to get there. For example, he gives one very good example. In Parshat Vayishlach, the end, there is a long piece about all the different generals and leaders, warrior chieftains, that were from um, Esau's family, by name and where they lived and who their children were. Why would we even care? What Relevant is it to us that Esav had a family and this was his child's name and this was a chieftain who lived in that city or town. Who cares? So we're never going to... Yes, we can understand the translation of the words. Have you ever had that? That somebody says a sentence to you and individually you can understand each of the words that that person has said to you. But when it's strung together as a sentence, you have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. So each of the words in the sentence makes sense in and of itself. But in a sentence, it makes no sense. What you re suddenly realize is that that person has a higher level of um, understanding whatever the subject is that they are talking about. They haven't said any difficult words. They just articulated something that's just beyond either your intellect or your knowledge. It's as simple as that. So why would the family of Esau have any relevance to us? I'm afraid we're never going to know. And however many explanations we can come up with, we could come up with a hundred counter-explanations or ideas as to why it should have been excluded from the Torah. So we're really offering apologetics. So what is the relevance of Parshat Esav, of the, of the Alufei Esav in the Torah? Sorry guys, we have no idea. But there obviously is a reason. So let's try and get some so now that we've got the you know it's one of the greek philosophers said i can't remember which was plato or aristotle said the more i know the more i realize how little i know right you know the the, the greater um the field of knowledge what do you know what do you actually realize when you study you read a book and you look at the footnotes and you realize oh my gosh there's 100 other books I need to read if I really need to understand this subject. By the way, the author of the book read those 100 books because you'll find them all in the bibliography. Okay, so you're going to buy those 100 books. 
and you're going to read those hundred books. And each of those books also has footnotes and a bibliography. And each of those may have another hundred books. A hundred times a hundred is 10,000. Are you going to read 10,000 books? And that's just about one subject. So the more you know, in other words, the greater the depth of your knowledge, the greater you realize that you're always going to be of very limited knowledge. You know, I'm always fascinated, particularly when I read books by Victorian scholars, because that was, you know, the great Victorian age is when people were running around the world and beginning to understand scientifically aspects of, you know, whether it was geology or medicine or whatever it was. And the sheer range of these people's knowledge of polymaths, you know, uh, Renaissance men, they just knew everything. But the truth is, I know much more than them in many ways. Why? Because 150 years later, technology has advanced, knowledge has advanced, science has advanced, everything has advanced. There's things that I know in my own limited way, because just because I live in, in the 21st century, which they didn't know and which they couldn't feed into their books, despite the fact that they knew all that they knew. And therefore, I know more than them. I'm a greater scholar than this great Victorian innovator. What is that telling you? That for all the knowledge that they had and these people spent 40 years in academia, I, in the 21st century, just by looking on Google, knows more than them. Essentially, the Torah is something about which we will always have very limited knowledge. So nobody has complete mastery of the Torah. What is our relationship with the Torah? It's limited to our level of understanding and our level of ability to access the information that's either already been put together or based on our own understanding of it that we can put together ourselves. But that's always going to be limited. No, that's right. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's a life of constant learning. It's a life of constant learning. And it, but it shouldn't be frustrating because the study of Torah is not about uh, getting a degree. It's not about mastering a body of knowledge. In a sense, all it is is about accepting that you will never master that body of knowledge and that there's always going to be surprises. The greatest scholar is the one that always learns. As it says in Pirike Avot, I learned a lot from my teachers. I learned more from those who were my study partners, but most of all, I learned from my students, which means that the teacher is still learning. He's still able to learn, even though he's the teacher or she is the teacher. They're still learning, there's still information, they can still be a eureka moment even after decades of study in that subject. Let's look at what the Nitivot Shalom says. Let's try and get a, an understanding of it. We're going to do it through the medium. What he's, what he's telling us here is that he is going to use this parasha with all this repetition, 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 12 times, exactly the same thing, he's going to use that as the vehicle to understand this concept. Okay? Why did the Torah repeat the exact same thing 12 times? 
כי התורה מעמידה וקובעת כאן את גודל קדושת עם ישראל. Because the Torah wanted to underline, wanted to stress at this particular moment the greatness and the sanctity of the Jewish nation, that the greatness of the Jewish nation who had received the Torah is something that's beyond our ability to understand. What is this whole idea? of the 12 tribes that God divided the nation into 12. Why would God have divided us into 12? Surely God demands and expects and wants and desires our unity as a people. Why create disunity by identifying 12 different strands or 12 different groups within that one so-called united group? וכמו שמצינו שההכנה לקבלת התורה הייתה על ידי ויחן שם ישראל כאיש אחד בלב אחד. We know the Chazal. It says ויחן, לא ויחנו. It says ויחן שם ישראל. That the nation um, rested there. Why does it say that they rested there? Because it's not they, he rested there. He being כאיש אחד בלב אחד, like one man with one heart. So while we divided into 12, for sure, it's not random. God doesn't unite us then to divide us. He doesn't play this game of divide and rule. That's not God. So what is it? We need to understand that the fact that God divided us into 12 distinct groups is something that has divine purpose and that may be beyond our comprehension. It's not something that we can necessarily understand. One division of 12 that we are familiar with, says the Nitibot Shalom, is the division uh, or the 12 different permutations of God's most elevated name. Yud K Vav K, right? We have this what we call in English the tetragrammaton. It's the four-letter name of God, which we're not allowed to pronounce. It can be written in 12 different ways. Each of them has its own, each way has its own power, its own strength, its own unique identity. Each tribe is identified with one particular um, uh, one version of God's most special name. What's another division of 12 that we have? The months of the year. Each month of the year is also associated with a particular permutation of God's name written in that particular way. But when you bring them all together, it's like a, a giant jigsaw puzzle. Each piece on its own it can be beautiful. You can look at it, it's got colors on it, but it doesn't have the same beauty as when you combine all those pieces together. Each Shevet, each tribe, each group has its own specific sanctity. Because besides for the general sanctity of Klal Yisrael, there is this more individual, or more special, more 
um, um, unique aspect, which is the sanctity of each tribe. And each one of them is its own entity for itself. It has its own way of coming to God, of of uh, uh, becoming close to God. Each one of those, you know, you have people who are particularly good at one thing, have this particular skill, and they excel at that skill. And you have somebody else who has another skill, right? And each of them does their thing in the best possible way. And when they come together, the combination of those skills can make the perfect team. Like you have, you know, in a business, you have somebody who's a brilliant salesman, not very good at back office stuff, but they're brilliant at selling the product. Then you have somebody who's a back office person, doesn't know how to do sales at all, but they know how to keep the numbers and make sure that everything is kept in 100% order. And there's many other skills that are needed in a business. Now, if you just have a salesman who sells and sells and sells, but for example, doesn't know how to collect the money, the sales are worthless. You need somebody to make sure that the customer is paying for the product. First, you need to make sure they're going to buy the product, and then you're going to need to make sure that they pay for the product. So you now you have a back office that ensures an invoice is sent and that payment is made, that collection is made. So there's no outstanding amounts of money that are owed. But without having a salesman to sell the product, you can have the most brilliant team of collectors and they're never going to have any money to collect. So you need each element, each strand of the business is crucial for the success of the business. In and of themselves, they may be very skilled, but they're useless without each other. So too with Klal Yisrael. There's different elements of Klal Yisrael. Each is equally important, but without each other, they don't make the whole. You need the Ishechad Belevechad to amount to all of these qualities that are to be found in each of the separate shivatim. These are 12 different ways to get to God in the highest possible way. And it's for this reason why the parsha of the Shvatim, of this gifts of the Nesi'im, is repeated 12 times. So that we, that we suddenly um, grasp the importance, the individual importance of each and every Shevet, the individuality of each one. As it says in the Midrash, even though each of them brought exactly the same thing, this is what the Ramban is talking about. We come back to what the Ramban said. Even though they brought exactly the same thing, it wasn't the same thing because what they did it for and how they did it and their intention and everything about it was different, was individual. So two people can bring exactly the same gift, but the way they present it, the way it's wrapped, I don't know what. You can, you, as I said before, the note that you write that accompanies the gift at the shower party can be different even if the gift is the same. The point is that each Shevet brought his own note to the table and was his own unique contribution. The Midrash goes into great detail there. Detail there. And, uh, as to the 
actual intention as to why each Shevet brought his gift. What was Nachshon's intention? He came from the tribe of monarchy. Because his father, or as it were, Yaakov Avinu, had placed Judah over all the other brothers and had elevated him to the position of monarchy, of royalty. Because the whole purpose of the tribe of Judah is so that they can be the royalty, the royal family of the Jewish nation. Each aspect, each detail of the gift, and the Midrash goes into detail there, was directly related to this concept of royalty. Nachshon thought it all through, and he came up with this idea that he was going to, um, the whole purpose of his gift was going to be as a demonstration of the royalty in his family. And what about on the second day? What was the identifying feature of the tribe of Issachar? The study of Torah. Issachar epitomizes the study of Torah. And therefore every aspect of his gift had something to do with the study of Torah. Their whole purpose, that they, they were the Torah learners, the Torah studiers of the Jewish nation. And each detail of his gift some had some um, clue about his specific interest in the study of Torah. Now imagine you would have just bunched that all together under one list of gifts. You would have lost that. You need to have Judah's gift first, Nachshon ben Aminadav. You read it through, oh, why is, why is this one being said separately than all the others? Because his intention was, the note that accompanied his gift was all to do with melucha, to do with royalty. Okay, now the next one. Yisachar, oh my gosh, it's exactly the same as the one we just had. So why are we saying it again? No, no. That one was to do with Melucha. This one is to do with Torah. It's totally different. The next one was Zvulun's prince. His whole purpose was, remember the tribe of Zvulun was the support tribe. They were the businessmen, the traders. They had seaports in the north of Israel and they were traders, Mediterranean traders. What did they do with the money? They went into partnership with Yisachar. You guys study in yeshiva, we'll do the trading along the Mediterranean coast, we'll come back with money, we'll pay you, you do the Torah So their whole purpose in life was to support and underpin Torah study. That was what they put into their gift. So we're reading the same gift again. One second, we read Judah, we read Yisachar. Why are we reading again with Zvulun? <laughs> This one's completely different. No, no, it's exactly the same. No, it isn't. Have you not read the note that accompanied it? His whole gift was to do with the support of Torah. And that, in that way, the Medrash goes about and explains each and every one of the Shevatim and demonstrates how the gift was totally different, even though it was identical. By the way, this doesn't mean that what we said at the beginning from Abarbanel doesn't work. It still works. They all got together. They all decided they're going to give exactly the same gift. But when they gave exactly the same gift so that there should be no jealousy and discord among the Jewish nation, they did so on the basis 
of their individual traits, qualities, characteristics, etc. Mashmaut divrea midrash. What is the midrash telling us? Shekol shevet yonek mi parshat korban shel anasi b'torah et kocho kedusha b'tahara b'avodat Hashem hamiyuchedet shelon. This is where we get to the Eish Kodesh. What are we to gain out of reading all of these different things? Because we also all have different qualities. Let's consider ourselves as individual shvatim. Some of, us, some of us might identify or be from the tribe of Judah. So we're going to identify with royalty. And we're going to read Yisachar's gift. We're not going to get the same inspiration from Yisachar's gift as we're going to get from Judah's gift. So when we read Judah, Judah's gift, we're going to have that light go on. And that gift is going to be special for us because we identify with Nachshon ben Aminadav. And some of us might be Torah learners. Which gift is going to talk to us? The gift of Yisachar. But you just read the gift of Judah. It was exactly the same. No, no. That one had to do with Melucha. That's got nothing to do with me. I'm not inspired by that. But I am inspired by people who study Torah. Okay, what about people who support Torah? They're going to read Nachshon ben Aminadav. They're going to read the tribe of Yisachar. Not going to be great inspiration for them. The light's not going to go on. You know when the light's going to go on? When they read the gift of the tribe of Zevulun. Because they're into Achzakat Torah. So that's going to be meaningful to them. Do you remember what the Eish Kodesh said? So this is, this is the interpretation. For that reason, the Torah wrote each and every gift, even though they were identical, but in its own portion. This is such a holy, sacred parsha. It is the source, it is the essence of the sanctity of all of the Jewish nation. It is through individualizing, individualizing each and every one that every one of us has something to gain when we read this parasha, which we don't get when we read about Yitziat uh, Mitzrayim, because there, it's everyone together. We're all bunched together. We, don't, we can't focus on that individual aspect of ourselves that might talk to us. Similarly with Matan Torah, yes, but I'm not exactly the same as you. Where am I going to get this thing that's going to be unique to me? So the Shvatim, even though they gave exactly the same thing, that which they put into it was individual to their Shevet. And therefore, they needed to be written separately so that when we, who are much later on, thousands of years later, read these parashot, parashot, this parasha, we get that individual intent and, and identify with each tribe's individual personality. Similarly, when it comes to the census of the Jewish nation, in Bamidbar, where each individual tribe is counted, what do we need to count each individual family and tribe for? What do we need it for? We could just say, what was the number, uh, um, the total number of the census? 603,550, that's the magic number. How many from the tribe of Reuven? Who cares? What difference does it make? 
How many from the tribe of Judah? It doesn't matter. It's not, it's not important. As long as we know the total number, it's not important. No, no, it's very, very important. The individuality of each Shevet is conveyed to us by counting them um, in their own separate number. We, we understand the puzzle, the different pieces of the puzzle that come together as one nation, only when we understand that it's made up of individual pieces. You should understand that these parashiot, which seem so mundane and useless and senseless and um, irrelevant and verbose and everything else, they are the holiest parashiot in the Torah. Because it's through these parashiot that we can identify with the individual traits and characteristics that are so important in terms of our relationship with God. And we can learn from the parashat anasim and it's through this, these parashiot that we can understand, truly understand, that which Chazal have taught us in the Talmud. Rachmana liba ba'i. Do you know what the Torah really wants from us? Our hearts. Not minds. Our hearts. You know that uh, you know, after the Iraq war they said we need hearts and minds? No, no, no. The Torah is not into hearts and minds. Hearts. That's what, the, that's what, the, that's what Chazal tell us. Rachmana liba ba'i. Hamachshava hi ha'ikar. The, the thought, the feeling, machshava in this sense means the feeling that you have towards something. That is the most important aspect of it. Because even though in practical terms you could have been watching each of the nasi'im bring the korban, you could say, one second, didn't that guy yesterday bring exactly the same thing? And you could have, and you could have answered, yes, it was exactly the same thing. But it wasn't exactly the same thing. Why? Because Rahman Ali Babai. Because the Torah is not interested, or God isn't interested in the thing. It's not the thing that matters. It's what goes into the thing that matters. Katva Hatorah Kol Karban Bepratot. In other words, each one was written individually, and you might say, oh, one second, they're all exactly the same. Because even though they were identical, they were never going to be identical. They were 12 seemingly identical things that were all completely different, that reflected the individual different aspects of the personalities of the tribes. And we'll continue just for five more minutes. V'yesh ledakdek od begufa parasha. So it said, if you remember, v'yakriva nesim et chungrat ha-mizbeach b'yom himashach oto, v'yakriva nesim et korbanam lifnei ha-mizbeach. Why does it say twice v'yakrivu? It says v'yakriva nesim, and it says v'yakriva nesim. We already said v'yakriva nesim, right? Why do you have to say it twice? Why? Why is it at It's extra. We don't need it. It's not necessary. We're going to say in the next pasuk the Why do we have to say it again? None of the other nesim have that extra word. And in fact, 
Why does it even say karbana in with the, each of the nesim? the karbana, and it adds the word, the letter vav. Remember what we said before: each letter counts. If you have an extra letter, it has to make sense, right? So why does it say in everyone karbana karban karat kesef achat? And when it comes to nachshon ben amidav, it says the karbana. What do you mean the karbana? Karbana, his karban. Why and his karban? So the answer is. He actually bought two karbanot. What was it? Two karbanot? Well, we know what he brought. He brought karat, kesef, achat, etc., etc. So what was the second karban? The gamba karban asheni shal netanel ben tzuar metzayanoshinui lashon. We see a similar, suddenly a different thing when we're looking carefully. I told you. When you have these two pictures, remember as children, we have the two pictures, they look exactly the same. Spot the difference, spot the difference here. Shenemar bo hikriv netanel, hikriv et korbano. What does it mean? Lokish ar hashvatim dechtiv behu rak korbano. Why does it say hikriv korbano? With netanel. Mahlimud lanu bechozeh, v'yishlomah. Alpi ma'ama moron admor. He says, he goes back to his grandfather's book and his book and he says as follows. La pasuk adam ki yakriv mikem korban l'Hashem min habehema min habakar min atzon takrivet korbanchem. When we talk at the beginning of Ayikra about a person bringing a korban, what do we say? Adam ki yakriv mikem korban l'Hashem. What do the Mfarshim say about this adam ki yakriv? Adam ki yakriv mikem korban l'Hashem ikara tachlit shel korban hi she yakriv atzmo l'Hashem itparach. It's not the carbon, it's not the animal. Silly. I remember I gave a shear on this two years ago. We think that carbon, you know, this was the problem. All the prophets in the time of the first Beit HaMikdash complained. People think, oh, they can do whatever sin they want. They go to the Beit HaMikdash, they bring a nice big bull, or they bring a nice, uh, you know, a nice sheep, or some other carbon, and suddenly everything's good. No, no, that's not the purpose of the carbon. Adam, Kiyakriv, bring yourself. You are the Korban. You have to be the Korban. You have to bring yourself close to Hashem. She akriv mikem Korban Lashem. Lakriv atzmo kalil Lashem Korban Ola. Ola. You have to, as if you were the Ola. You're not the Ola. But as if you're the Ola, then you have to bring yourself. And then, Zewa Korban Hanirtse Korban Lashem. God wants you. He doesn't want the bull. He doesn't want the, he doesn't want the sheep. He wants you. And how do we do that? What are you meant to do when you're, when you are bringing a korban? You're meant to discard all the animal traits that you have. The tzon, the bakar. That's what you're meant to get rid of. You're suddenly meant to shake it all off. The first thing you need to do is to completely rid yourself of all aspects of bemiyut in you, of animal-likeness in you. Adam ki the word Adam, by the way, is a very important word. Adam in, in, in the Torah means more than, uh, is more than just an ordinary person. Adam! You are, you are the essence of creation. 
God created Adam, the first man. You are the essence of creation. You're away from all the animals. You're not like all the animals. Now we understand why it says et korbano twice when it comes to Nachshon ben Aminadav. Nachshon ben Aminadav, who are Rishon shekafatz liyamsuf b'misurut nefesh v'ikriv atzmol ha'ashemit barach. What did Nachshon ben Aminadav do? The Midrash tells us that nobody wanted to jump into the Red Sea. And they came to the foot of the Red Sea and behind them is the Egyptian army and they're all crying, they all think they're going to die. And God says, jump into the Red Sea, sure. Well, it's a choice between drowning and being uh, killed by the Egyptian army. Maybe, uh, who knows, maybe the, we can surrender and they'll take us prisoners. They'll take us back to Egypt. I'm not jumping into the sea, I'm going to drown, I can't swim. Nachshon ben Aminadab jumped up until he was up to his nostrils in the water. He was ready to sacrifice himself. He was makriv himself. Do you know who Nachshon ben Aminadab was? He was the makriv et korbano. He was makriv. He understood this concept of a korban. Then he goes, and the korbanon, this is what he brought. This was his gift at the dedication of the altar. In addition to the fact that he was already somebody who's willing to sacrifice himself, he gets the concept, he, you know, he knows what this is all about. He also brought this beautiful gift at the dedication of the altar. And that's why it says, twice. He epitomized it. Individually, he epitomized this concept. But that's what it says by all the Nesim. First, they did the, the dedication of the altar. They brought their gift. But they also went through this process of understanding what it means to bring a korban. They are the mentors of what it means to be a makriv, what it means to bring a gift, what it means to get close to God by giving something. God doesn't need your thing, but God wants your heart. Remember what he said, It's not good enough just to bring the thing and think that that's okay, and then just go about your life as if nothing ever happened. You know, it's, it's like the guy said uh, at the end of Yom Kippur, Okay, Bor Hashem, I did tshuva, God forgave me, now I can do all the Averis again. It doesn't work. That's not what it's about. That's not what, it, that's not what, what is meant to happen. What about the word he kriv and the next nasi netanel ben tzuar? As we said earlier, what is the purpose of the tribe of Yisachar? What is their central characteristic? The study of Torah. What does, what does Chazal say about the Torah? The only way you're really going to get the Torah is if you're killing yourself for it. It's a colloquialism. It's not meant to be taken literally. We don't take a gun to our heads. That's not what we're talking about. But somebody who sweats the Torah, not who comes and sticks his feet up and hopes the Torah is going to come to him. Somebody who's really making an effort to study Torah. He's willing to totally subjugate his own personal things so that he can gain knowledge of Torah. It's not about me. It's not about me. 
שהתורה מתקיימת רק על ידי מסירות נפש. Torah is only able to be perpetuated, to be sustained through Mesirut Nefesh. Valken bekorban shevet yisachar ne'emar b'miuchad, hikriv et korbanam. That's why this unique word is used with yisachar. It's, it's a coded message to us through the tribe of yisachar, which was this tribe that studied Torah. We are given a coded message as to what it means to study Torah. You need to be hikriv. You need to be somebody who understands that you are not going to be overtaken. Uh, sorry, you're not going to allow Torah just to come to you, but you're going to do it with mesirut nefesh. Keneged inyan me'mit atzmo ala Torah. We'll leave it here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Rabbi Donner, if the suffer then was so attached to 